So, uh, as most of you know, I moved here from my home state of Mississippi earlier this year, so naturally a question that I get asked at least weekly, whether it be here or when I go back home, is a simple one. So how are you liking Birmingham, Billy? And let me be clear, I very much appreciate being asked how a major thing in my life is going, so please do keep asking that question. But do you ever get asked a question so often that you naturally develop a canned answer that just flows out of your mouth without even thinking whenever you get asked it? That's become the case for me with that question. And part of that canned answer typically consists of a diatribe that's somewhat like this. Birmingham's great because it's certainly unique, it's new, but there are a lot of similarities between Birmingham and Alabama and Mississippi, so there's not that much culture shock for me. And there's truth to that. There's truth to the similarities I've seen between the state of my home and this, my new home. Now, we don't have mountains where I'm from, nor do our Piggly Wiggly sell merchandise that people actually wear, much less have functioning lights throughout the grocery stores and the ones we have there. But we share between these two spaces uh, many of the characteristics that we tend to associate uh, with the good things about the South. Charm, hospitality, humor. All of which, of course, you can find anywhere, but there's a, there's a particular expression of that, a warm expression of that, that just feels unique in this region. And among those characteristics that I associate um, with this region, and that I see both in Mississippi and in Alabama, is this emphasis on storytelling. Good storytelling. Whether it be just through art, uh, whether it be through art, whether it be through music, whether it be through the front porch on rocking chairs, storytelling tends to form who we are as a people. We see that through famous products of our state. Uh, for my home in Mississippi, I think of people like William Faulkner and B.B. King. Here in Alabama, I think of Harper Lee and Jason Isbell. These are just to name a few. And both of our states claim Jimmy Buffett, actually. He was born in Mississippi, lived here. And that's far too important a figure to be ambiguous about, so we're going to fight about that after service. Uh, so we can talk about that later. But you have your famous storytellers, but also those less famous storytellers, right? The family member who captivates our attention at Thanksgiving dinner or during slow nights on the front porch. The teacher who inspired us to aspire toward a meaningful, greater life. You know, the way that I have gotten to know the character of this church since starting here is not through statistics or programs or anything like that. I've gotten to know this church through the stories that I've heard shared in conversation in the hallways, around the table at midweek meals and at common tables. That's the way I've truly gotten to know the nature of this church and the people uh, that those who've been here for a while aspire to be, through storytelling. Now, good stories do more than just tell about a past event or a past claim. Good stories shape who we are in the present and who we aspire to be as we move into the future. Stories form our imaginations and they instill within us virtues of hope that can't be achieved through moral platitudes or dogmas or doctrines alone. Now this, of course, is not just restricted to the American South. Stories are just a part of the human experience wherever you may go. And stories are vital to the experience of Christian faith, of religious life. No other time is this more true to me than on days such as this, on All Saints Day. 
On this day, we gather to remember and honor the stories of those who have gone before us and those whose examples of faithfulness inspire us to pick up the baton of faith and to continue the journey of embodying the love of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. Now, saints are understood in a myriad of different ways throughout all of our traditions in the Christian faith. But the simplest way that I seek to, that I've found uh, to define a saint uh, comes from the words of an Anglican bishop named Michael Ramsey. He says this, a saint is an ordinary person who makes God real for someone else. Ordinary person who makes God real. Not perfect people, not famous people only, but people who through their love and witness give us more reason to believe that this whole faith thing is more than talk, but something that actually is of power, that means something, that is doing something in our lives and in our world. You know, I love that if we were to lift up all the names of those saints, those people who made God real for us in this room, if everyone were to stand up and tell their story about those saints, I guarantee you the list of folks that we'd put together would be very diverse, with so many differences, different backgrounds, life experiences, different types of beliefs, but something would bind them together still. I'm also led to think of those that we may not have known, but whose faithfulness has in some way made God real for us. This church is an incredible testament to that. You know, if you take a moment to walk around this chapel and around this church, as I do way more often than I should during work hours when I should be in my office, you're going to find the names of so many saints gone by on plaques around here, in photos, in church directories. And these names can be easy to overlook for those of us who have not been here for decades and don't have that long-term institutional memory that so many people in this church have. But nonetheless... Those saints and their faithfulness, their faithfulness to sustaining this church in big and small ways have led us together on this day to being able to gather together in this place for such a time as this. I don't know these people at all, nor do many of you, I imagine, but something binds us together with them still. Indeed, in the spaces of faith where I found myself sitting in a chair or a pew next to someone who I share no other life experiences with, I've managed to find friendship, kinship, love, hope, and charity because something binds us together still. What binds us together is a story, a story of the good news of the kingdom of God. A story of hope that is able to hold fast against any form of darkness that we may face, including death. Now, this story does not make everything easy. But this story interrupts the narrative of death with the goodness of life. We see this in the scripture for today found in Isaiah 25. Isaiah is a fascinating book of the Bible because, frankly, it's kind of all over the place as you kind of journey your way through it. But a consistent theme that we see in Isaiah is this movement from judgment to hope, from calamity to promise, and from death to life. Constantly, we see this movement occurring throughout, um, throughout the story, especially in the first half of Isaiah. And chapters 24 and 25 of Isaiah offer what can be identified as a tale of two cities. 
One city spoken of in chapter 24 is the city of chaos, characterized by oppression and death that is leading the city into ruin. But then in Isaiah 25, we read a prophecy of a new city described through these words from Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, which should be on the screen behind me. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow and which a well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, when I need my faith reawakened, I've found myself, especially recently during tough times in our world and in in life as, you know, kind of progressed through it, I find myself drawn to the poetry of the prophets, the prophetic word who, who opened up this vision of life that we can't always see right in front of us. Because dogma and doctrine alone mean very little if we do not have a vision of what it is that we are striving towards that has captivated our hearts. And I love the way in which the prophets speak of God's kingdom by painting a picture that is somehow both extraordinary and beyond this world, but also pretty familiar for us. This is what I mean by that. This feast of rich food that we see in the scripture, yes, speaks of this heavenly banquet down the road, but it also brings to mind for me more than some all-you-can-eat buffet. It brings to mind to me the tables that I have sat at with the saints in my own life. The times when dinner wasn't something to rush through, but a time to cherish with company that made the best of meals even greater. We recall those good times, those memories that we have at those tables as we read the scripture, while also being pointed to a vision where those joys will never end on the other side of Christ's redemption. For those who know the pain of an empty chair at the dinner table, Prophetic poetry that we see in this scripture beckons us to recall when that chair was filled, but this time not as some cruel taunt of how death has come into the world, but as a reminder that the life which was lived by the one who filled that chair remains beautiful in the eyes of God, and that the shroud of death which covers up that life will be destroyed. The prophetic poetry that we read in Isaiah speaks to more than just personal memories, though. It's not just a personal text. It also speaks of this vision of who we are to be in the kingdom of which we are to live. A people of, it speaks of provision for all people and healing of disgrace and pain for all the earth. This is a grand vision that the prophet does not cling to just for his own people, not just for Israel in this scripture, but for all of creation where all tears are wiped, where all people are welcome to the table and fed, and where death is inexcusable and inexistent for all people. This 
is a story worth telling. This is a story worth shaping our entire lives around. And this is the story that we have inherited from generations of the faithful. This story that we've inherited from an exiled nation from thousands of years ago. This is a story that has survived everything that the world has thrown at it ever since. War, famine, societal upheaval, the breaking down of institutions. This story has survived all of these things have been passed on through the saints, through the faithful to us right here in this quaint little neighborhood in Hoover, Alabama here in 2023. This is a pretty strong story. But, especially on this day, I want to name a feeling that I'm sure that I've felt and maybe you have felt too if you're not feeling it right now. All this poetic talk that we see in the scripture, sometimes it feels just like that. Poetry. Sentimental, beautiful words, but negligent of reality. You know, we talk a lot about folks who have been burned by the church due to cold-heartedness or malice that they've encountered, as we should, because that still occurs way too much in the church. But sometimes we overlook those who have been burned by the church because their pain was answered with well-meaning, sentimental words that looked good on an Instagram post, but overlooked the complexities of their broken heart and of their mourning. So if you feel that today, especially if you bear with you the memory of one you have lost today. I want to honor that. And while I don't have the perfect answer, that feeling reminds me why we shouldn't read these words from Isaiah in a vacuum, but through the context of the entire story. You see, this message of hope from Isaiah 25 is offered from the context of anguish. Isaiah has before him these two, these visions of two paradoxical realities for his native land. One of suffering that is to come and one of hope. And with it is the full knowledge that the suffering is the first to come for his people. This is before exile hits. And you know, the word swallow that we see in this scripture, a very visceral, powerful word, The word swallow is typically associated in other scriptures with either the earth, the ground, or Sheol. Swallowing up life. And Isaiah sees that. Around Isaiah, the forces of sin have swallowed up the morality of the society in which he lived. And before him is this vision of death swallowing up life as invading empires come and invade Israel and Jerusalem and send them into exile. And with the weight of this reality is where the text then speaks to a vision that one day it is God who will swallow up death once and for all. Amy Erickson is a professor of Hebrew Bible and she puts it this way. Like all good art, the images in Isaiah 25 are not uncomplicated or blithely beautiful. For this imagery to work effectively for a people who are well acquainted with the powers of death God must be more than just loving, more than just tender. God must be stronger and more voracious and more vicious than death. Friends, we live in a cultural moment where quick fixes and simple answers are more tempting than ever. And they lead us to proclaim at times, myself included, a fairly cheap hope. 
But the hope of which Isaiah speaks is a stubborn hope. A hope that doesn't ignore flames or deep waters, to use the language of Isaiah 43, but promises that God will be with us as we go through those flames and through those deep waters so that we may not be overcome. This is a hope that we see in Jesus in the story of Lazarus' resurrection. This is the gospel text in this week's lectionary that goes along with this story from Isaiah. When Jesus goes down uh, to see his fa- uh, the family of Lazarus after Lazarus has died, he looks on the pain of those mourning loved ones and toward the grave of his friend Lazarus. And the text tells us that the Savior, who knows what's to come, is still deeply moved to the point of weeping. And it is through the tears of his eyes that he looks toward that grave and cries out with a loud, passionate voice for Lazarus to come out. This strong, stubborn hope in the midst of pain of mourning, this is the hope to which we cling and that which we are to embody. A substantive hope, not negligent of pain, but strong in it. A stubborn hope that walks through the valley in the shadow of death and nonetheless shouts out for life, even if through tears, knowing that death will not get the last word. And this hope is formed by stories. It's made real through stories. Stories we read in these scriptures, but also through stories that we've seen come alive through the saints uh, that have made God real for us who have helped us see resurrection power occur in our lives right here and now and not just on the other side of eternity. And friends, it's our turn to be those saints for others. Through VBS, through Bible studies, through confirmations, through friendships, through sacraments, through so many things in this church and outside of these walls, we have received a story that has been shared with us that forms us, comforts us, gives us hope, and gives us life. Don't you think for one moment that God has given you such a story and not made you a storyteller in some shape, form, or fashion? We're all storytellers. You don't have to be in order to do that. But we can tell this great story in some way. And if you feel the particular sting of loss today, as we tell this story today at this table, We do so with the memory of those saints we've known, loved, and lost. And if you feel that particular sting of loss, know that you're not alone in this space. For as a community brought together by the one who wipes away tears, we stand ready to bear burdens with you. As a community brought together by the one who overcame the grave, we stand ready to help you experience hope in the midst of your despair and to honor your pain rather than minimize it. As a community brought together by the one who will prepare a feast of celebration when death is once and for all defeated, we make room for you at this table, knowing that when we come to this table, we are one with each other, one with all the saints who have gone before us, those known and unknown, and one with our Savior who welcomes us to come to this table to enter into the story that binds us all together. Friends, this is a table that you are more than welcome to. 
And this is a table that we can bring the memories of those who, get, who have gathered around it. Those who have been a part of our lives. And we can remember them with love, with fondness. And knowing that the story still binds us together. With those who have gone, with those around us, and with all those, with all those who claim this great hope. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.